Hey, everybody, welcome back to the show. I get legal questions all the time. I get so many legal questions. It is crazy. It's like right after product market fit. And so what we like to do here on this week in startups is do our startup legal basics series. And I bring my own attorney, Becky DeGraw from Wilson Sassini on she's a partner over there. She works with startups across all stages and helps me with all kinds of issues. We've been on tons of adventures, some of them crazy, some of them delightful, everything in between. Uh, some of them a little anxiety producing even, Becky. <laughs> but we always seem to work it out in the end, yeah? Yeah, and that's what keeps it fun, too. It keeps it fun. It's, it's really, when we think about startups and, and law and startups, it's a bit of the Wild West um, at times. But we've codified so much of it in standards, and these standards are based on trust. What I'm always amazed by, I don't know if you have the same amazement, in America and in the law, is that, and especially in our industry, Silicon Valley, is that we've created over decades these standards, and people, um, even though they could be standards breakers and they can do all kinds of stuff and, and you know, jump the fence and go crazy, everybody, 99% of the time, obeys the standards and just works in good faith to build companies together. Isn't that amazing to you? It is. And there's a whole ecosystem around it. The way from do from how we do the deals to who's involved to the time, the structure, the terms. I mean, there is definitely a, a market around all of that. And you can certainly tell when players that aren't used to it kind of come into the ecosystem. And, you know, they get identified pretty quickly as not not necessarily understanding how it works yeah and, and, and it's important for founders to understand that there are people who've been working for 10 20 30 sometimes 40 years in the industry and they know the standards uh so get a great lawyer know the standards come in try to keep everything standard terms as a founder uh when, when you're doing these things and deviating from the standards and getting creative yeah i would say in the legal space not a great idea Maybe yeah. you could talk a little bit about, you know, people saying, I want to try to do something new. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we, we definitely, like I always say, like from from a business perspective, yes, break the box, disrupt, do something new from a legal perspective, mm. not not the place to do it. it, it it's just it, it's not worth it. Right. right? In, in the long run, you're going to spend so much more money going down that path. You're going to be viewed as an outlier. In mm. terms of what everybody is expecting to see. And at the end of the day, when you get that two minutes in front of an investor, don't spend a minute and a half talking about your creative legal structure. <laughs> like that should be the last thing that that should be the 10 second blurb. This is what I've got. I'm good to go. I understand yeah. this. Let's talk about the business. It's just so well said, uh, Becky. You know, if you're going to be creative and you want to do unique things, your startup, yeah, the culture of your startup, the product, how you, how you, um, you know, interface and, and disrupt an industry, all of that's available to you. But when you're doing your <laughs> stock option plan for employees, or employment contracts or trademarks or corporate structure, board structure, investment documents, this is a place to enjoy um, the absolute efficiency of the standard docs. Yep, yep. It's been tried and true over time and time again, like, there's a reason why this is where everybody has gravitated toward, toward and it works. You know, the interesting one as we get into this, because I wanted to talk to you today just about the general trends. And we got so many to go through. But one thing that was interesting uh, when somebody tried something different was the safe agreement, right? We had uh -huh. convertible notes 
And then YC worked on the safe and the safe has become a bit of a standard. But there are some things with a safe agreement that have been challenging on the margins, maybe you could talk about that innovation and, and how it got sticky. And then maybe what founders should think about when they do a safe, if any. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when the when the safes first came out, people were like, eh, I don't know about this. Let's just stick with our convertible notes. And then they started gaining traction. And the reason they started gaining traction was YC really pitched it as, look, this is supposed to be a fairly middle of the road approach. It's not going to be solve all the, the best terms for investors. It's not going to give companies all the best terms. You both are kind of going to meet in the middle. But the beauty of it is when you're doing these rounds, particularly like if you're investing $50,000, $100,000, right? And, and you have multiple folks coming in over that. Mm. You don't want to spend a ton on legal fees. Mm. It's meant you go to the YC website, you download it, you fill in the blanks. It's not meant to be renegotiated, right? Mm. Um, and that's, that's the beauty of it. And people were like, hey, this is a great instrument to use. We don't have to get counsel on both sides involved to review these documents, particularly for smaller um, investments. And we're off to the races. So fast, cheap. And then over a couple of years, that became the norm. It definitely replaced mm. wherever we were using convertible notes. And sure, we would still see convertible notes here or there, depending on certain circumstances. But the vast majority moved over to the safe. But the safes are certainly not as protective to investors. So it really depends on, you know, what hat you're looking you're wearing at the time, you know, from a uh, investor perspective, they're not, not as protective. And what we're seeing right now, in mm. this market, that is tending to switch a little bit from, you know, the last, call it five or eight years that have been very company founder friendly to swaying more back toward a perhaps investor favorable market is investors are starting to use convertible notes a lot more than saves. Mm. Maybe not necessarily for that first round of like pre-seed. Like we're still seeing safes come in at that point because we're still see still seeing a pretty strong seed market. But if we're using convertible notes to bridge between equity rounds, like between your A and your B or your B and your C, that's just getting harder and harder to 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 get. Um, that's where we're starting to see the convertible notes come in. Um, and and is the reason because people want to know, like, hey, by this date, it's going to convert. Or I can get my money back and I'm going to get a little interest. What are the investors hoping to get with the convertible note that they don't get in terms of protections with the same? Yeah. So, um, one, it is actually a debt instrument. So, mm -hmm. the safe is not. The safe is it's not debt. It's not equity. It's kind of this quasi thing in between. Mm -hmm. um, really, it's a contract is, is what yeah. it is for you to get future equity. Um, but the the convertible note is debt, which means if there's any dissolution, any liquidation, any sale of the company, debt is number one in line prior mm -hmm. to any equity. So first and foremost, that's like the biggest protection that's out there. Other things that it includes is an interest rate. So that's a nice mm -hmm. little benefit to investors. Um, you know, we used to see interest rates on these things, maybe like low three, 4% now with the interest rates going up and with the more investor favorable terms out there, we're seeing eight, 10% on these, oh, wow. these conversion notes. Um, which is much, much higher than what we have seen before. And hey, that's actually something. It will add up over time. Generally, that interest doesn't get paid, but it gets converted. So when it's the not principal free. convert, yeah. yeah. When the principal converts, the interest converts and the investors get, you know, a little added benefit there. Um, it also has a maturity date that mm. safes do not have. This is like the the forcing function from an investor perspective, right? Is like the safes can just hang out there. 
for as long and they as do. they want. And they do. <laughs> I'm sure. And they stack I'm sure you up. personally know that. <laughs> I mean, I've just watched some folks stack them up and, you know, you're like, at some point, is this going to become equity? Like, and, and we're going to have a cap table. And they're like, well, technically, you don't own any shares. And I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. okay, that technically is true, right? Yeah, it becomes a little disconcerting for investors, I think, if they go yeah. on forever. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the most convertible notes, the, the point of the maturity date is not that the investors are actually going to come in and call the node and put the company into, you know, an insolvent position, but it's a forcing function for the parties to come back to the table. Let's talk about what's going on. Let's talk about what the next steps are and to get, yeah. you know, figure out what those, what, what the path forward is. And to explain to founders, just so they understand and investors who listen to the program, uh, let's say you put a hundred thousand in and you have this 8%. Okay. Every year that goes by, let's take it, it takes three years or let's make it 10%. So it's super easy. Now it's at 110, then it's at 121, then it's at 100 and whatever that is, you know, 133 or something. So you've got 30,000 in interest that's built up over three years, added to the 100, if it was a $10 million valuation cap, instead of getting 1% of the company, you would get 1.3% of the company or so. So that little yep. interest builds up, gets converted into equity. So this uh, means the, the the value of the money, the time value of money gets accounted for uh and nobody's really in it for the interest but in in a high interest rate environment people are saying well i could choose to put my money in a bank account or in the startup maybe there's some some ground here that's even and then if the company does become insolvent um, and somebody has put a convertible note on top of a bunch of safes the person who puts the convertible note in is in a much better situation correct that's right yeah that gives them the priority essentially Mm -hmm. in any type of downside scenario or sale of the company and, and you know w- when you have a short sale getting sold for less than the amount that was invested let's say five million dollars has been invested in a company it's being sold for four million there's not going to be uh somebody is not going to get their money back or some group of people are not going to get you know a dollar for dollar but the later stage ones might and so this is why uh in a tight market like we're in now capital gets a little bit of an advantage in a crazy market like we experienced for the last let's call it 2019 to 2021 the the terms went completely the other way pick good partners i think have thoughtful conversations about this and um just you know you got to understand both sides of the table so tell me what you're seeing in terms of um companies that raise that high valuations during the hot market uh what do they call it like you make hay when the sun shines and you know (laughs) Some founders were like, J-Cal, Becky, I'm getting this crazy offer. And then we said to them, okay, that is a, a delightful offer. Um, sure, you can take it, but you have no revenue. And now your company's worth 50 million. In order in a down market or in a reasonable market, you might have to have five or $10 million in revenue to justify that. So just understand, you're going to have to use this money to get there. And if you don't, there could be issues, uh, including a down round. So explain broad strokes obviously you're not going to talk about a specific company but you see a lot of activity what has life been like for you at wilson sonsini and working with startups who did raise at high valuations and now find themselves needing to raise again yeah so it's 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 not a pretty picture right now um you know the the seed and a a stage stuff is still pretty strong. We're seeing seeing a lot of activity there, and that market is good. But for the type of company that you're talking about, right? It typically was like they raised their B or their C or even a D, you know, at these really high valuations, and they raised a lot of money during that time. And you know, when I 
what I'm hearing when I sat in on on the board meetings is, you know, call it maybe even two years ago or year and a half ago when folks, well, maybe, yeah, maybe about a year and a half ago, um, when folks started talking about, hey, maybe we need to be a little careful here. Maybe we need to conserve cash. And that became a big topic of every board meeting. Of mm-hmm. What's our runway? How much are we using? How long do we have? Do we, you know, look at sacrifice growth to preserve cash for a little bit longer and really analyzing different types of proposals and trajectories for the company to, to figure all of that out? A lot of those companies have been able to use the money that they raised in 2021 to kind of just sit on the sidelines right now. The later mm-hmm. stage market is largely significantly shut down, right? The closer you get to IPO stage, the, the less deals that are happening. So the crossover stuff is hardly ever happening. The really mm-hmm. late stage stuff is also really slowed down. But even doing like a series B and C, even if you're still fairly far away from you know an IPO, they're just more difficult to do right now. Investors are looking for more metrics um, mm. and and to make sure like yes this is this is going to be it. Um, what what is interesting right is like by by choosing to kind of take a uh, a lower growth approach and maybe conserve cash a little bit more. Those companies that are about time, like a lot of them, looks like maybe later this year are going to have to go out and start raising because they've oh exhausted. You know they're about to exhaust yeah. the money that they raised in twenty. 2020, 2021. And when they do, they may not have, you know, those awesome hockey stick metrics that folks are used to seeing because yep. they purposefully kind of restrained, pulled, tightened things down and, and pulled back a little bit. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how the market reacts to that. But that all being said, right, like there's a whole, there's another dynamic here that's really interesting too that we haven't seen in the past when we've had you know, one of these type of slowdowns. And that's, there's a lot of dry powder setting on the mm. sidelines, right? So like you look at 2020, like biggest funds raised ever, 2021. Yeah. Oh, we broke those records by investors raising even bigger funds. And guess what? Even though 2022, half of the year was kind of a, a, a difficult year, funds still broke, you know, fundraising records. But that capital is being deployed at a much, much slower clip than it was. So- yes. There's an ima- a massive amount of dry powder on the sidelines that want to invest and at the end of the day, like need to invest, like there's usually time bombs on those of, hey, we got to invest by a certain you know, time period. And you've got these in the, the companies now that raised and need to come mm. back to the market for their next fundraising. Yeah. What we're seeing, though, is a big valuation disconnect between the two right. parties. Um, investors are like, hey, I'm here. I'm ready to write big checks. I'm ready to jump in. But I think your valuation is not quite what it was the last round. Right. And the founders don't necessarily share that view, right? They've- or the boards and previous investors, because they have uh, some input as well, depending on how the board and governance was structured. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, particularly like on the the founder side, right? Um, and, and investors too. So many of these folks, even if you've been doing this for 10 years, you may not have seen like a down round environment. Like you're used to up, yeah, up and I up. mean, I started investing as an angel, as a scout for Sequoia in 2009, 10, right after the great financial crisis. I only knew uh, an up market 
Now, I had been through it as an entrepreneur a couple of times, the dot-com craze and the great financial recession, but not as an investor. So these investors now, they have a, a concern if you were a previous investor. Okay, I marked this at a billion dollars in my past fund. I'm on my next fund or I'm raising my next fund like I am yep. right now. Okay, I'm raising my next fund. This thing's marked at a billion. Okay, if somebody offers 200 million for this and it's an 80% haircut, like you know Peloton or some public market company has got a haircut you know, of 80%, Okay, um, I've got to mark that down in my books. Now my, you know, rate of return for my last fund has gone down. Is that going to impact my ability to raise the next fund? There are so many dynamics for fund managers that happen. And then you have the founders and the employees, maybe the price of this next round that people are willing to pay, um, you know, crushes the valuation. And you said uh, correctly, some of them went to conserve cash. So they conserved cash, so they slowed their growth rate. So now we're like, huh, this thing's growing 20% a year instead of 3x, or this thing's not growing. What is it actually worth? It, it, maybe it has to be sold. So this all is going to happen in the next 12 months. Yeah, it's it's going to get it's, crazy. It's coming. It's coming to a head. And I mean, we're, we're definitely seeing it more. Mm. I mean, like, the end of 2022. And first quarter of this year, I was having a lot of conversations about mm down rounds and pay to plays and we're dusting off the playbook as to what are all those other features and you know mm. levers you you might be able to you might need to to pull on to to get a financing done and a lot of it revolved around education i think initially mm -hmm. um we started to see a little bit of you know you know uh down rounds coming in and but the conversations were happening much more right like mm. oh, okay maybe maybe i need to revisit that well we saw a really big increase um from just in in Q1 of down rounds well but well first of all like it was like 40% of all the private company financings that we see and that's both on the company and the investor side were either flat or down hmm. that's a huge number for not yeah. being up and then that's a lot of medicine people are taking <laughs> that is hmm. right um and then when we saw like pay to plays being used in down rounds that increased from something like 15% like 40%. Okay, so we should pause here for a moment and define pay <laughs> to play because if you've been in the industry for but 15, even 20 years, you've never heard this because the last time pay to play came into effect was either in the great financial crisis on the margins, but that was a shorter duration. And it wasn't as hard, actually, I think, as this has become. And this isn't as hard as the dot com. So I think this winds up, I think you might agree between the great recession and the dot com bust is where this all nets out to be in terms of pain and suffering. But let's define pay to play. Yeah, so if a company is doing a financing, let's call it their Series B financing. Um, basically, you would put this provision in place that essentially says, you as an existing investor, you have to participate in the Series B financing and you have to buy your pro rata share, or it could be a percentage of your pro rata share. All of these terms are customizable. Mm -hmm. But usually it's you got to buy your pro rata portion of the Series B or else something bad's going to happen. Mm. Usually the something bad that happens is all of your preferred stock is going to get converted to common stock. So the idea is you have to pay by participating yeah. to play, to continue to be a preferred stockholder and keep all of the rights, all the bells and whistles that you have. And there's all sorts of ways that this can be structured, um, but that, that's the basic concept and it can get more or less aggressive uh, onerous yeah 
Mm-hmm. So when this happens, a founder drives it typically, the new investor drives it, the board drives it, it would be against the board's best interest. So in my experience, boards sometimes say, hey, I don't advise this because they want to keep their preferred shares without having to put more money up. So who becomes the drivers of this? Practically speaking, does council pull aside a founder and say, listen, here are your options. And this is but one of them. Because it, if you're if you did the Series A, and you own 10% of the company, and now they say, hey, new rounds going to be $3 million, you got to put up 10% of that 300,000, they don't want to that funds deployed, whatever it is. Or your 300,000 becomes common. And it, you know, your three, your whatever 10%, your 300,000, your 10% goes down to 1%, you know, net net at the end of the day. How, how do these conversations go down? It's super uncomfortable, huh? It's uncomfortable. And it's complex. Like there's a lot of technical legal issues that that come up across this and I, uh, what, you, what you're alluding to around a lot of it is conflicts <laughs> there are lots yes, and lots of you. conflicts um at, at well, all let's, the levels let's, let's break let, let's talk about the top two or three conflicts that a founder existing investors and new investors are going to have to navigate because there, there's going to be two or three of these we might as well put them on the table here and then after we discuss what the conflicts are how the resolution gets done practically speaking yeah, so one of the the biggest ones is going to be at the board level, right? Like any transaction, any financing transaction has to get approved by the board. So the first thing we're going to want to understand is who on the board is conflicted. And a lot of that is going to depend on what type of transaction it is. These down rounds, if we're if we're talking about kind of a traditional like this isn't okay, a little bit of step down from the last round. We're talking about okay, you were to, in your example, a billion dollar uh, post money coming off from your last financing, we're about to do something at a 200 million pre or something. We're talking about significant down rounds here. Quite often, they're insider led. Mm. Lots, lots, lots of time they're insider led. And what that is, is like the insiders, the existing, when I say that, like the existing investors who are on the cap table are the ones that are coming to the rescue to say, okay, fine, I'm going to put more, more money in but here's my terms. And, mm. you know, they are pulling down on the valuation. That can be one scenario where the existing investors are the ones that think, okay, maybe we did overpay in that last round. And, you know, the company's not where, where we expect it to be or macroeconomics. But we have some you know, have belief changed. in it because we think it could rise or we wouldn't even make the offer. We would be writing it off and we'd be saving our time on the board. So It's not the worst situation. The worst situation is they say, good luck with the company. We're off the board. Let us know how the investment works out. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So this is somewhere between, yeah, like the death scenario and the, you know, uh, some, some version of faith because they're putting some money in. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's where we will start to see the conflicts arise. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's um, who, and when you say, you ask like, who's driving, Mm -hmm. it's usually the company needs money and whoever is willing to put the money in is driving that initial conversation in terms of I'll put money in, but I'm not going any higher than this valuation. And then that's like where we're like, okay, now this is the scenario that we're in and we have to deal with, with this. When, when Delaware courts look at conflicts at the board level, mm-hmm. they are very broadly defined. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. If I'm in, you know, I'm an investor and I'm sitting on your board and I'm going to participate in the financing. That's a clear conflict. But even if I am not going to participate in the financing, well, let's say 
I co-invested with this other mm-hmm. investor that is also sitting on your board. And we do a lot of co-investing together. And we're in a lot of companies together. Mm-hmm. And, oh, I actually vacation with, with them in, in the summer. Oh. Guess what? I'm, I'm going to be conflicted, too, in that mm-hmm. scenario. And Delaware looks at all sorts of things, all sorts of things outside of just purely transaction other mm-hmm. retransactions where does the yeah. founders conflict come in because they have their entire net worth in there so they're obviously conflicted and they're and then there's the employees so they're conflicted because they have to deal yeah. with employees so yeah so the the big conflict on the founder level is almost always when we're talking about that crazy 80 percent drop mm-hmm. um that has to be coupled with an option refresh otherwise your management team your employees aren't sticking around so you've got to you've got to do that. So you've got either some sort of option refresh or some sort of management incentive plan that you're putting in place. As soon as you put that in place, everybody on the common side, right, the setting at the board, the founders, the management team, they're going to be conflicted. So it's actually really hard and traditional. You're talking about kind of this is the standard way of doing things. Yeah. Even like industry experts. And you, I mean, you'll see them at the later stage companies. But even then they can be conflicted because they might have bought preferred stock too and they might be mm. impacted by this pay to play. And if wow. we decided yeah. that we're going to carve out the smaller preferred stockholders and it's not going to be applicable to them, guess what? <laughs> that still means they're conflicted because they have an interest wow. in how the terms are going to play out. Um, if that industry expert is somebody that, again, I'm the investor and I've, I suggest this industry expert every time I'm on a board for this type of company and we serve on five different companies together. And I always bring that industry expert yes. in and I'm participating. He's not. Guess what? He's probably still conflicted because of that relationship that we have. Like I am wow. the ticket for his next board entry, right? So it, it, the conflicts So all conflicts deep. all the time. And then basically good faith and having your back against the wall results in a transaction closing or the company closing, sadly. At some point, people have to say, like, listen, this is the best we can do. There's three months, two months, one month, two weeks worth of runway. We either take it or we shut down. Which are we going to do here? And, and in my experience, it's that, you know, being pushed towards the edge of the cliff that suddenly makes everybody say, okay, I'll take the medicine. Yep. And that's, that's exactly right. Why, why investors, because sometimes people still have kind of a concept of why would existing investors do this to themselves? Mm. Well, sometimes that's the only choice. Yeah. And in order to save the portfolio company, and, and at the end of the day, they've got to believe that the company will live to fight another day and become the next billion dollar company and revive. Yeah. Otherwise, they're, they're not going to do it. But if they believe that, they still have to justify, like, what am I doing today? Mm. And why am I investing today on these terms? And that's where the terms start getting aggressive. And depending on what the goals of the company is, like, you know, the kind of example we've been using at this billion dollar valuation company that's getting cut down to 200 million. One of the goals of that, I imagine, is probably going to have to be like a full recap of the company. And what that means yeah. is like, we've got to like right size the cap table because the liquidation preference stack that's tied to the preferred stock that you've already sold is probably going to be higher than the value <laughs> of the company now. And that <sighs> that's not, that doesn't work, <laughs> right? From from an economic standpoint, certainly not from raising, that doesn't put you in a good position to raise your next financing either. 
So in that mm. scenario, you know, we not only need to do the down round, we may do a pay to play, but we've also got to put like this recap in place mm. that essentially right sizes, you know, the liquidation stack and your cap table. The good news here is if you're having those discussions, people still believe in you and your company. They just believe in it at a different price. And so founders can, you know, as hard as this is, we have seen many companies go through this uh, and, you know, rabbits be pulled out of hats on a regular basis. We have seen companies survive down markets, whether it's Facebook post IPO, not understanding how to get mobile going. Apple had near death experiences. One of your famous clients, Apple, uh, Wilson Sonsini. Um, Larry Sonsini was Steve Jobs' personal attorney, if I remember correctly. Uh, yep. When I met Larry one time, he told me that. <laughs> so <laughs> legendary. Um, so I think this is a good place for us to pause. In the next episode, we'll talk about all this options repricing and, and how to take care of the employees and some of these other uh, technical issues. Becky, thank you again for talking us through the other side of the coin. We were here a couple of years ago talking through how to pick your best term sheet and how to negotiate your best terms. And here we are a couple of years later talking about how to save your company, right? Uh, this right. is how it goes. The pendulum swings both ways. And hopefully, I think 2024, we'll start to hit some normalcy. And, and this is part of the process. So, And we have all these young companies, too, that are starting. So that's very exciting. And uh, we'll see you all next time on Startup Basics. <laughs>